Welcome back to Psych Your Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you're in the U.S., I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying your time with your loved ones and your little break away from work. If you're not, sorry that you have to stay on that grind for those of you who are in other countries. But I still hope that you enjoy the weekend coming up. As always, I think those of you who are listening from countries all around the world, I always get so happy when I see uh, people tuning in from countries that I haven't seen before. So thank you guys so much. I truly appreciate it. I know I say this at the beginning of every episode, but I always just thought that it would be like a couple of family members and that's it. I definitely did not think that I would be doing this for this long. So thank you guys so much. I greatly appreciate it. Please stop by the Patreon. Or, and also, I'm going to have the link for the uh, store. It is Crime Scandal in Design by Human. So if you go to the Design by Human website and look up Crime Scandal, that's the name of my store, the Design by Human site. We have a Santa's Got a Flamethrower and a Grudge uh, design for Christmas. Uh, you can get that in a hoodie, sweatshirt, t-shirts, um, etc. We also uh, have a couple of other different designs. So if you want to head over there um, and see what you can grab for Christmas, that would be greatly appreciated. Now this week we are going to get into a mass shooting that happened in Norway and made international headlines. Now there tends to be a lack of consensus on how to define a mass shooting. Most terms define it as a minimum of three to four deaths due to gun violence. Um, and that does not include the shooter themselves. An Australian study from 2006 described it as a minimum of five and added the requirement that the victims actually passed away as opposed to just being injured. Now, the Investigative Assistance for Violent Crimes Act of 2012 defined mass killings as three or more killings in a single incident. However, the Investigative Assistance for Violent Crimes Act of 2012 did not define mass shootings um, across the board, across the whole world. That was just here in the U.S. Media outlets such as CNN and some crime violence research groups such as the Gun Violence Archive define mass shootings as involving four or more that have been shot, injured, or killed in a single incident at the same general time and location, but not including the shooter. Sometimes shootings involve three or more victims occur in non-public situations, such as when a one member of a family shoots all the other families in the home, which would be a familicide. Those would not be considered a mass shooting. The motives for mass shootings, which occur in public scenarios, are defining features in what are usually committed by deeply disgruntled individuals seeking revenge or payback for failures in school, career, romance, or life in general. If multiple people are shot in a robbery or killed in a terrorist attack, these deaths are also not included under the definition of mass shooting. In the United States, there are several different but common definitions of mass shootings. The Congressional Research Service defines mass shootings as multiple firearm homicide incidents with four or more victims at one location. The FBI definition is essentially the same. Often there is a distinction made between private and public mass shootings, i.e. a school, a place of worship, or a business establishment. Mass shootings undertaken by foreign terrorists are not included in this, no matter how many people die. 
These formulations are certainly workable, but the threshold of four or more is arbitrary. There are also important exclusions. For example, if 10 people are shot, but only two die, the incident is not considered a mass shooting. Homicides by other means are also not counted. If five people are run down and killed by an individual driving a motor vehicle, the deaths do not count because firearms are not involved, which is kind of self-explanatory. It's stupid for them to try and explain that. Like, we don't have enough sense to understand. Like, we're not going to call it a mass shooting if you run somebody down with your car and then step outside with a gun. It's not a shooting. No shooting occurred. There are also inclusions that can seem curious because of the motives of the perpetrators when considering mass shootings. For example, multiple homicides that result from an armed robbery gone bad are included. So basically what they're saying is mass shootings are when someone show up with the intent to shoot multiple people just to shoot them. That was their only intention. It does not count as a mass shooting. If you commit, say that you go in to commit a bank robbery, it doesn't go off without a hitch. Somebody decides they're going to play a hero um, and you shoot that person. And in the process, you shoot three other people trying to escape that does not count as a mass shooting because you're it's basically in the united states we would call that um felony uh it would be like if someone died it would be considered felony murder because you killed them in the commission of a robbery so that's why that would not be a mass shooting what might be done some claim that mass shooting perpetrators suffer from severe forms of mental illness what we need are better mental health services. However, many shooters do not survive the shooting and therefore there's little time for intervention in their mental health. In addition, the vast majority of people in need of mental health services pose no threat to society, let alone the threat of committing a mass shooting. We have therefore no evidence one way or the other that mental illness is at the heart of most mass shootings. But even if mental illness were a key factor, prospective mass shooters would need to already have been receiving mental health services for their hostile intentions to be identified. In the past, at least, most mass shooting perpetrators were not receiving services. Perhaps the most promising venue for mental health intervention is at the high school level, where regular contact with counselors could be universal. However, there is a host of cost and privacy complications and a very large number of false positives is likely going to be the result. This is something that is experienced during satanic panic here in the United States. We had a lot of counselors reporting that children were being molested in daycare. A few times the parents were like, my kid doesn't go to daycare. What are you even talking about? So there is um, the possibility of false positives, meaning like a, like a parent, a, counselor could tell a parent that they think their kid is going to be a school shooter just because they're an isolated loner that in and of itself is not a precursor to being a school shooter others claim that the problem is easy access to firearms especially semi-automatic handguns and assault rifles the united states just like all countries has a large number of individuals who for many reasons are prone to violence lethality from semi-automatic firearms can turn a brawl into a mass shooting the Second Amendment, coupled with the sheer number of semi-automatic weapons throughout the country, make gun control options very challenging. Even well-designed and implemented background checks can only work if prospective mass shooters have disqualifying attrib attributes. One important instance may be perpetrators convicted of intimate partner violence who are under a court order prohibiting possession of firearms. More surgical interventions, such as banning high-capacity magazines, may be a much better approach in general. Still others claim that target hardening is the answer. For institutions such as high schools, target hardening in principle might help. 
but that means determining exactly what target hardening entails and what works. Both must be informed by real evidence, not by sales pitches from security forums or fact-free ideological assertions. There are also major challenges in scaling up to approximately 20,000 high schools in the United States, the vast majority of which will not experience and are not in danger of ever experiencing a mass shooting. High school students are far more likely to die in automobile accidents than to be killed in a mass shooting. For other venues, such as business establishments, shopping centers, and outdoor concerts, places of worship, challenges are greater, with the most difficult settings being private residents. What could target hardening mean there? There is yet another possibility. Mass shooters need to prepare. They require at least one, often more than one, semi-automatic firearm and many rounds of ammunition. Some acquire bullet-resistant vests. And there also have been tendencies to broadcast their motives, intentions, and even their exact targets on social media. These indicators often materialize shortly before the shooting is to be undertaken and can in principle be monitored. For example, a victim of intimate partner violence may be able to alert the police or providers of domestic violence support services that their significant other has created threatening, uh, has created threats to fatal violence. Various kinds of surveillance can be undertaken, assuming that criminal justice agencies can properly follow through. So what target hardening is, is, is basically it's making it more difficult for people to attack certain targets. And it is very, very difficult to make it next to impossible to, to attack a high school when usually the people attacking the high school are the students. Um, same thing with churches. How do you make it next to impossible to attack a church? It's a church. It's a place of worship. It's supposed to be a safe space for everybody. So basically what they're saying is making it, mostly it's it's private security firms that pitch the target hardening option. But the question is how? How do we do this in these places that are supposed to be safe spaces for the people who attend them, such as high schools and churches? Each homicide is a tragedy, but deaths from mass shootings should be understood within the broader context of gun violence. So just to put some perspective on this, um, in the United, in other countries, for example, Japan, for example, has as few as two gun related homicides per year. These numbers include all homicides in the whole country, not just mass shootings. The only mass shooting in Japanese history ever was the Suyama massacre, one ever in the history of the whole country. Now, if you look at Australia, Australia, there were three mass shootings with five or more deaths between 79 and 96. So in almost a 20 year span, there were 13 mass shootings in almost 20 years. There were three mass shootings involving four or more deaths that have occurred since the introduction of the new gun laws following the Port Arthur incident. So in total, there were 16 between 79 and now. 16 in 40 years. Well, yeah, in all in 40 years, 16. In stark contrast, in the United States, we're just going to go over 20 years, so 21 years. In 2000, we had three mass shootings with 17 deaths. In 2001, there were two with five deaths. In 2002, three 
with 23 deaths. Uh, 2003, three with nine deaths. In 2004, three with 20 deaths. In 2005, three with 18 deaths. In 2006, four with 25 deaths. In 2007, five, five mass shootings with 60 deaths. In 2008, six mass shootings with 47 deaths. In 29, there were seven mass shootings, 59 deaths. 2010, five mass shootings, 27 dead. In 2000, uh, sorry, I lost. 2010, five mass shootings tw and 27 as well. I'm sorry. 2009, it was seven mass shootings and 59 dead. Seven mass shootings, 59 dead. Five mass shootings in 2010 with 27 dead. In 2006, or 2011, 2011, six mass shootings, 38 dead. And 2012 is where there's a huge leap in the amount of shootings in the year. In 2012, there were 12 mass shootings with 86 casualties. In 2013, seven mass shootings, 40 casualties. Uh, Six in 2014, 28 casualties. In 2015, 12, 89 casualties. 2016, 14, 11 casualties. In 2022, or 2017, 22, 22 mass shootings in the United States in 2017. 22 162 casualties 162 casualties most of those happened in las vegas most of those happened in one place over 100 happened in one place in 2017 in the vegas shooting in 2018 we had 19 mass shootings and 101 casualties in 2019 18 110 in 2020 even with covid there were still six mass shootings 16 casualties and so far this past year in 2021 10 mass shootings 63 casualties that is the dramatic difference in japan there was only ever one mass shooting in the history of the country they have as little as two gun related homicides per year and we literally have gotten to the point where our mass shooting deaths, not our gun-related homicides, but our mass shooting deaths are in the hundreds. And our mass shooting incidents have gotten to the double digits. That is the dramatic difference. Even in Australia, where they're saying, where they took things to a more serious level and they instituted gun laws. It's, it, there's a dramatic difference. And then people say things like, well, what about places like the countries in Africa? It is very, very different. You can't really put together a mass shooting list in places that are torn with war, where you have child soldiers, where you have people who are getting kidnapped and, and, and they're being forced to, like I said, be child soldiers when they're like five years old. You know, you can't really compare gun violence in countries like that to places like the United States. And as insane as it sounds, you really do come from a place of privilege where you can keep tables and lists like this of mass shootings that happen because we have the privilege 
to, and it is a privilege to have weapons when you have countries where only the military can have weapons and they then use those weapons to victimize the citizens of the country. So as much as we want to cause a scene and and carry on about our Second Amendment rights, we really, really do have to recognize that it is very much a privilege for the average citizen to be able to carry a weapon when there are so many countries where only the military can carry weapons and then they then use those weapons to victimize the average person. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and the UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's P-O-D. That's a stamps.com promo code POD. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So we're now going to go into the story. His name, um, please excuse me if I pronounce this wrong. It's Fyotov Hansen. He was born... On the 13th of February, 1979, but started going by the name Anders Pioring Breivik. Um, and he started going by the pseudonym of Andrew Berwick. His family name is Breivik, while Bering, his mother's maiden name, is his middle name and not part of the family name. His family name um, literally means Broad Vic or Broad Bay. Um, in 2017, he changed his legal name to Vyotov Hansen. Like I said, please excuse me if I butcher this. Um, he was born in Oslo on the 13th of February, 1979. He was the son of Huench a nurse, and Jans David Brevik, a civil economist who worked as a diplomat for the Norwegian embassy in London, later in Paris. During her pregnancy, Anders' mother uh, developed a disdain for her son. She claimed that he was a nasty child and he was kicking her on purpose. She had wanted to end the pregnancy, but by the time she returned to Norway from the UK, she had passed the three-month threshold to be able to do that. Psychologist reports later stated that she thought that Brevik was fundamentally nasty and evil and determined to destroy her. She stopped breastfeeding him early on because he was sucking the life out of her. She spent the first year of his life in London until his parents divorced when he was only a year old. 
When Brevik was four, living in Oslo, in the Frogner district, two reports were filed expressing concern about his mental health. A psychologist in one of the reports made a note that the about the boy's peculiar smile, suggesting it was not anchored in his emotions, but was rather a deliberate response to his environment. Now, this may sound really weird and like they're overstepping bounds, but it's actually not. Basically, what they're saying, what they're reporting is that he has a flat affect and they think that he's mimicking people's emotions and reactions. Basically, they're saying that as a child, they thought that he was a psychopath and that he lacked empathy and was mimicking uh, behaviors of the people around him in order to fit in. And another report by psychologists from Norway, uh, Norway Center for Child and Youth Psychiatry, concerns were raised about how he was treated by his mother. She sexualized the young child, hit him, and frequently told him she wished he were dead. In the report, Wenchbiering is described as a woman with an extremely difficult upbringing and borderline personality disorder, an all-encompassing, if only partially visible, depression, who projects her primitive, aggressive, and sexual fantasies onto her child. If you don't know much about borderline personality disorder, someone with borderline personality disorder, their personality will switch on a dime. I've had clients with borderline personality disorder in one minute, like, They'll be sweet, charming. They'll literally make themselves smaller than me so they can seem like they are less um, challenging than me, uh, like they need me. And then the moment that they think that like I'm going against them or that I'm not agreeing with them or that they're not gonna get what they want from me, they will bring themselves to their full size so that they're larger than me and they'll use their biggest, most booming, most intimidating voice. Like they completely switch personalities. It's like a completely different person. So, um, Psychiatrists did recommend that he be removed from his mother and placed into foster care when he was four, as she was heavily emotionally and psychologically abusive to him. His mother fled her abusive home at age 17 and soon after that became a teenage mother. In her 30s, she was married to Bravek when Anders was born. In 1983 and 1984, at the National Center for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, one psychologist and one psychiatrist wanted Brevik forcibly removed from his mother. The clinic placed a care order for the boy, but this was not carried out by Child Welfare Services. Brevik's mother moved back to Oslo, where she borrowed Jens Brevik's apartment in the Frogner district. The neighbors claimed that there were noises of fights and that the mother left her children completely alone for extended periods of time while she was working as a nurse. In 1981, Brevik's mother applied for welfare benefits, specifically a monetary payment or financial aid. In 1982, she applied for respite care for her son. She says that she was overwhelmed with the boy and unable to care for him. She described him to be clingy and demanding. Brevik was then placed with cooperation from child welfare services with a young couple. The couple later told police that the mother, when bringing two-year-old Brevik to the house, had asked that he be allowed, wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was not expecting that. That he be allowed to touch the man's penis because he had no one to compare himself to in terms of appearance. Yes, she definitely needs a lot of help. He only saw or was used to seeing girls' vaginas. 
the woman told the couple, according to the couple's undated statement to the police. In February of 1983, on the advice of her neighbors, Brevik's mother sought help from the National Center for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. The mother and Brevik were outpatients, and they stayed there at daytime for about one month. So uh, for Americans, that's intensive outpatient. So it's when you go to a day program for mental health services, you go to groups, you see an individual therapist, but you go there for a day and you don't spend the night. The conclusion of the stay from the psychiatrist was Brevik would be ple- would be placed in the foster care system and had to be removed from his mother for him to develop at a normal rate. The justification for this was several observations. Brevik had little emotional engagement. He did not show joy. He didn't cry when he was hurt. He made no attempt to play with other children. He was also extremely clean and became anxious when his toys weren't in order. Psychologists believe that he had become this way because of the negative reactions his mother displayed to any emotions when he showed them. They thought that she had punished him and reacted extremely negatively to him, displaying emotions that had led to him being devoid of any any emotions of his own. His mother had also claimed that he was unclean and she constantly had to care for him and run after him. Psychologists believe that Brebeck had become this unnaturally clean because of a fear of punishment by his mother. He didn't show the normal level of uncleanliness that a four-year-old child should. Brevik seemed extremely careful and controlled, much more so than any normal child his age. He had no repertoire on how to express emotions normally. During long phases of emotional voidness, he would rarely erupt and display extreme uncontrolled emotions. Now, the reason this is a huge red flag is that when you're looking at toddlers, toddlers are prone to emotional outbursts. They're prone to temper tantrums when they're not getting the things that they want. So when you're dealing with a four-year-old who is completely perfectly behaved, they never lash out, they never throw a temper tantrum, they never get upset when they have their own way, that is incredibly disturbing. Once or twice, perfectly normal. You're looking for a toddler to have an emotional outburst is what they're supposed to be doing. They don't know how to use their words yet. They should be lashing out at least every once in a while. It's normal. When they never, never, never lash out, when they're always clean, they're always ordered, that means there are some deep emotional disturbances in the family and that the child is acting from a place of fear. Reports of the staff that his mother had told Brevik while she knew that she was being observed by a health professional that she wished he was dead. At the same time, she was bound to him emotionally, alternating between great affection and extreme cruelty from one moment to the next. This is also incredibly common with emotion, with emotionally abusive parents. This was an unacceptable situation for a four-year-old to be in. The report from 1983 stated Andres is a victim of his mother's projections of paranoid, aggressive, and sexual fears towards men in general. She projects them on to him in her own primitive, aggressive, and sexual fantasies, all the qualities in general that she thinks that men should have, but also punishes him because she regards all the qualities that she finds to be dangerous and aggressive in men in him. Brevik reacted very negatively to his mother. He alternated between clinginess, petty aggression, and extreme childness. The final conclusion of the observation was that the family is in dire need of help. 
Anders should be removed from the family and given a better standard of care. The mother is provoked by him and remains in an ambivalent position which prevents him from developing in his own terms. Anders has become an anxious, passive child that averts making contact. He displays a manic defense mechanism of restless activity and feigned deflecting smile. Considering the profoundly pathological relationship between Anders and his mother, it is critical to make an early effort to ward off severely skewed development in the boy. However, Child Welfare Services did not follow its own recommendation. Instead, he was placed in respite care only on the weekends. They hoped that eventually he would be placed in foster care. That's insane. That's like being like, eh, I know that, that she messes you up. Like, I know that, that she's touching you and stuff, but we're just going to, you know, give you a break on the weekends. However, when Brevik's father, Jens, learned of the situation, he filed for custody. Good for you. Although Brevik's mother had agreed to have him put in respite care, after Jens filed for custody, she demanded that Brevik be put back into custody. Of course she did, because, you know, she hates men. So she doesn't care if some other couple and another mom takes her kid, but she's not going to let some man, especially his own father, come and take this child. Both the mother and father involved lawyers. Eventually, the case was dropped because welfare services thought they wouldn't be able to provide enough evidence in court to warrant the placement of Brevik in foster care. How? He's emotionally stunted. I feel like that should be enough. One of the main reasons for this was the testimony of staff, which Brevik had been the nursery or the day school, which Brevik had been attending since 1981. They described him as a happy child and claimed that nothing was wrong. Oh my God, a flat affected a four-year-old with a flat affect is not a child that has nothing wrong. But you have to remember this is the 80s and pretty much as long as the child wasn't wiling out and losing their mind, that meant everything was cool. So, all right, I don't necessarily blame them. They also stated nothing had been wrong with him all along. During all of this, they maintained their stance and said urgent action is crucially needed to prevent a severely skewed development in the child. So child services wrote a letter claiming that an order should be placed to have him removed by force. In 1984, a hearing in front of the Municipal Child Welfare Committee took place on whether Brevik's mother should lose custody. Child Welfare Services lost the case. The agency was represented by a social worker with no experience of representing cases. It was ruled that the family should just be supervised. However, after three visits, supervision was discontinued. Brevik was never again put into respite care or foster care. Do you guys have any idea how difficult it is to end supervision with child services in the United States? It is so hard. It is absolutely so difficult. In the state where I am, you have to go to every three, first of all, you have to meet with the worker on a regular basis. Then every three months, you have to go in front of a foster care review panel. And then on top of that, you have to have a judge sign off on getting your case closed. It's not just as simple as, oh, three meetings, nothing happened, good to go, have your kid back, no. So the fact that it was this simple is absolutely insane to me because our system is a nightmare in the United States. And there are so many people who have people call in false claims with child services and never get their case closed. They constantly, they always have an open case for nothing. So that's why I find this insane. Brevik attended the Schmitz Grammar School, the Ries Junior High, 
Harsty, I'm sorry, and I know I'm butchering this so bad. Please, please, please excuse me. Hart, Hart, Hartwig, Hartwig, Nissen Upper Secondary School and Oslo Commerce School. I so apologize, Norway. A former classmate called recalled Breivik as an intelligent student, physically stronger than others of the same age, who often took care of people who were being bullied. Breivik lived with his mother and his six-year-old half-sister in the west end of Oslo and regularly visited his father and stepmother in France until they divorced when he was 12. His mother also remarried to an officer in the Norwegian army. Breivik chose to be confirmed into the Lutheran Church of Norway at the age of 15. In his adolescence, adolescence sorry, Breivik's behavior was described as having become rebellious. In his early teen years, he was a prolific graffiti artist and part of the hip-hop community in Oslo West. He took his graffiti much more seriously than his associates did and was caught by the police on several occasions. Child welfare services were notified once and he was fined on two separate occasions. According to Breivik's mother, after he was caught spraying graffiti on walls in 95 at the age of 16 and fined, his father ceased all contact with him. It was reported they had not been in contact ever since then. According to Breivik's father, however, it was his son who broke off contact and said that he would always have welcomed Anders despite his destructive activities. At this age, he also broke off contact with the hip-hop community after he fell out with his best friend. From adolescence, Breivik spent his spare time on weight training and started to use steroids. He carried out a lot of his own looks about appearing big and strong. Breivik also criticized his parents for supporting the policies of the Norwegian Labour Party and his mother for being, in his opinion, a feminist. Breivik also was exempted from cons conscription to the military service in the Norwegian army and had no military training. The Norwegian Defense Security Department, which conducts the vetting process, say he was deemed unfit for service. Gee, I wonder why. After the age of 21, Breivik was in the customer service department of an unnamed company working for people from all countries and being kind to everybody. A former coworker described him as an exceptional colleague. While a close friend of his said that he had a very big ego and would be easily irritated by people who were Arab of South or South Asian origin. Brevik visited Belarus as a tourist in 2005. He went there to meet a woman he had met on a dating site. The woman later did visit him in Oslo. According to friends, he had cosmetic surgery on his chin, nose, and forehead in his early 20s. On July 22, 2011, a bomb exploded in a car outside the office of Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg in central Oslo. The powerful blast killed eight people and injured hundreds. The explosion in the small, usually peaceful nation was a shock to the world. As news of the blast spread, Brevik boarded a ferry to the island of Yatoya, 25 miles northwest of Oslo. Brevik was armed and dressed as a policeman. Utoya was, was the location of a political youth server camp organized by the Norwegian Labor Party. Brevik claimed he had started a nine-year plan in 2002 at the age of 23 to finance the attacks, forming his own computer programming business while working at the customer service company. He claimed his company grew to six employees and several had several offshore bank accounts 
and that he made his first million kroner at the age of 24. He wrote in his manifesto that he lost 2 million kroner on stocks, but still had about 2 million to finance the whole attack. The company was later declared bankrupt, and Brevik was reported for several breaches of the law. He then moved back to his mother's home, and according to him, in an attempt to save money. The first set of psychiatrists who evaluated him in their report to his and in their report, his mental health had started to deteriorate at this stage. He entered a state of withdrawal and isolation. His declared assets in 2007 were about 630,000 kroner, or $76,000 US. He claims that by 2008, he had about 2 million kroner, or 243,000 US, and nine credit cards giving him access to 26,000 euros. In May 2009, he founded a farming company under the name Brevik Geofarm, described as a farming sole proprietorship set up to cultivate vegetables, melons, roots, and tubers. In 2010, he visited Prague in an attempt to buy weapons. He was unable to obtain a weapon there and decided to use legal channels in Norway. He bought a semi-automatic 9mm Glock 34 legally by demonstrating his membership in a pistol club and the police application for a gun license, the semi-automatic Ruger Mini 14 rifle by possessing a hunting license. Brevik's manifesto included writings detailing how he played video games like World of Warcraft to relax and Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 for training simulations. He called, he told a court in April of 2012 that he trained for shooting using a holographic device while playing Call of Duty. He claimed it helped him gain target acquisition. Brevik had no declared income in 2009 and his assets were around 390,000 kroner or 72,000 US. According to the Norwegian Tax Authority, he stated that in January 2010, his funds were depleting gradually. On the 23rd of June 2011, a month before the tax, he paid the outstanding amount on his nine credit cards so he could access the funds. In late June, he, removed, he moved to rural area south of Asta in Ahmet, Edmark County, about 140 kilometers northeast of Oslo, the site of his farm. According to his manifesto, he used the company as a cover to legally obtain large amounts of fertilizer and other chemicals so he could make explosives. A farming supplier told Brevik, sold Brevik's company six tons of fertilizer in May. The newspaper reported that after Brevik saw a small quantity of explosive primer from an online shop in Poland, his name was among 60 passed to the police security service by Norwegian Customs Service as having used the store to buy products. Speaking to a newspaper, John Feast of PST said the information they found gave no indication of anything suspicious. He sets the cost of the preparation of the attacks at 317,000 euro, 130,000 out of pocket and 187,500 in lost revenue over three years. So he lost more than he actually spent. That's really stupid. Brevik's neighbors described him as looking like a city dweller who just wore expensive sh shirts and knew nothing about rural life. Brevik also covered up the windows of his house. The owner of a local bar who once worked as a profiler of passengers' body language at the airport said there was nothing unusual about Brevik, who was an occasional customer at the bar. 
because I totally believe the guy who works at a bar who used to be an airport profiler, like 100%. Hours before the attacks, Brevik emailed a 1,500-page manifesto to 5,700 people titled 2083, a European Declaration of Independence. In the document, Brevik attacks multiculturalism and the threat of Muslim immigration to Norway. Why are people so scared of Muslims? Like, okay, yes, I understand. We have some terrorist organizations that have done some horrible things that have Muslims in them. But Christians have done worse. Why isn't everybody running around trying to keep all the Christians out of their countries? Oh, wait because they have more in their countries already. Like, I just feel like it's stupid and it makes no sense. Um, if you stack up the body counts of Christians to Muslims, I feel like it's probably way, way, way high. I mean, look, the Crusades, like, for Christ's sake. Haha, <laughs> you see what I did there? Yeah, I know, I shouldn't be making that joke out of this. But it just seems absolutely crazy to me that people want to come for Muslims as hard as they do when Christians have done just as awful if not worse things in the name of religion so kind of pot kettle black situation i feel like every time people want to be like you know hide your kids hide your dog muslims are coming like really every muslim i've ever met has been absolutely lovely so as well as he's scared of the marxists and the norwegian labor party is there anybody he was not worried about coming to norway or taking over norway Brevik copied large sections of the Unabomber Manifesto. Like, you couldn't even make your own manifesto. You you straight had to lift it from one of our guys. Like, not that that's a good thing that you're, like, stealing from other people's playbooks like they all do, but come on. Brevik writes that he is a savior of Christianity. They all say they're a savior of Christianity, Jesus, and claims to be part of the Knights Templar. No, you're not. They don't exist anymore. Brevik was active on several anti-Muslim websites. When the political tactical unit Delta arrived on the island and confronted him, he surrendered without resistance. Of course he did. He didn't really want to die. After his arrest, he was held on the island and interrogated throughout the night before being moved into a holding cell in Oslo. Brevik admitted to the crimes and said the purpose of the attack was to save Norway and Western Union. Europe from a Muslim takeover and that the Labour Party had to pay the price for letting down Norway and the Norwegian people. I'm sorry, bro, but you're not going to save all of Western Europe in its entirety from all Muslims everywhere. So dial back your ego. After his arrest, Brevik referred to himself as the greatest monster since Kessling. For those of you who don't know who Kessling was, Kessling was a Norwegian guard and Nazi sympathizer. So he was a Norwegian soldier and Nazi sympathizer. On the way to his first jail meeting, Brevik's police escort was met with an angry crowd, some of who shouted, burn in hell or traitor, while others used much stronger, colorful language. On the 25th of July, 2011, Brevik was charged with violating paragraph 147A of the Norwegian Criminal Code, destabilizing or destroying basic functions of society, and creating serious fear in the population. I wish we had those charges here. Do you know how many people would be in jail if we had those charges? Both of which are acts of terrorism under the Norwegian law. He was ordered held for eight weeks, the first four in solitary confinement pending further court proceedings. The custody was extended in subsequent hearings. The indictment was ready in early March, 
The director of public prosecutions had initially decided to censor the documents um, sent to public, leaving out the names of the victims as well as details about their death. Due to the public's reaction, the decision was reversed prior to its release. And on the 30th of March, the Borgatan Court of Appeal announced that it had scheduled the expected appeal case for the 15th of January 2013. It would be heard the same specially constructed courtroom where the initial criminal case had been tried. Brevik was kept at Aya prison after his arrest where he had his dispose, had at his disposal three cells, one where he could rest, sleep, and watch DVDs. The second was set up for him to use a computer without the internet, and the third, he had a gym. Wow. Norwegian prison. Super, super great. Like, I'm not, I'm not mad at it. I do, I 100% believe that we need to have better uh, care in our prisons here in the United States, 100%. I don't think he needs three cells, but that's just me. Um, only selected prison staff with special qualifications were allowed to work around him. The prison management aimed to not let his presence as a high security prisoner affect any of the other inmates. Subsequent to January 2012, lifting of letters and visitors censorship for him he received several inquiries from private individuals and he devoted his time to writing to his like-minded fans according to one of his attorneys brevik was curious to learn whether his manifesto had begun to take root in society brevik's attorneys in consultation with him considered whether to have some of his fans called as witnesses during the trial Media outlets, both Norwegian and international, requested to interview him. The first such was canceled by the prison administration following a background check of the journalist in question. A second interview was agreed to by Brevik and the prison requested a background check be done by police in the country of the journalist. No information was divulged about the media organizations in question, just that they never passed the background check, which leads me to believe they didn't belong to any media organizations. They were just fangirling over serial killer. Gross. Brevik underwent his first examination by a court-appointed psychiatrist in 2011. The psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, concluding that he had developed the disorder over time and was psychotic both when he carried out the attacks and during the observation. He was also diagnosed with abuse of non-dependent producing substances on 22nd of July. The psychiatrist consequently found Brevik to be criminally insane. According to the report, Brevik displayed inappropriate and blunted affect, the one that they noticed when he was four, and a severe lack of empathy, like I mentioned before. He spoke incoherently in nihilisms, and he acted compulsively based on a universe of bizarre, grandiose, and delusional thinking. Brevik alluded to himself as the future region of Norway, master of life and death, while calling himself inordinately loving and Europe's most perfect knight since World War II. He was convinced that he was a warrior in a low-intensity civil war, and he had been chosen to save his people. Brevik described his plans to carry out further executions of categories A, B, and C traitors by the thousands of psychiatrists included, and to organize Norwegians in reservations for the purpose of selective breeding. Oh, God. Throw some eugenics in there. Absolutely. Just, or eugenics, excuse me. Throw eugenics in there. Absolutely. Couldn't be any more Nazi sympathizing than some eugenics. Brevik believed himself to be the Knight Justar Grand Master of the Templar Organization. 
He was deemed to be suicidal and homicidal by the psychiatrist. According to his defense attorney, Brevik initially expressed surprise and felt insulted by the conclusions in the report. He later said, this provides new opportunities. Only, only someone with severe ego issues feels that being found criminally insane provides you new opportunities. The outcome of the first competency evaluation was severely debated in Norway by mental health experts. Over the court appointed psychiatrist's opinion and the country's definition of criminal insanity. An extended panel of experts by the Norwegian Board of Forensic Medicine reviewed the, supported, the submitted report and approved it with no significant remarks. News in the meantime emerged that psychiatric medical staff in charge of treating prisoners at Aya Detention and Security Prison did not make any observations that suggested he suffered from either psychosis, depression, or suicidality. Now, psychosis, this is a huge one. Depression, you can, you can suffer depression and not have any outward symptoms. It happens all the time. Um, suicidality you can same thing you can suffer suicidality and not have any outward symptoms psychosis is a little different now in psychosis you believe things that are not real so they're saying that he has a grandiose ideology about who he is and his importance in the world but then people are saying that the that the psychiatrists that were watching him never actually witnessed this grandiose ideology so how are you going to see that he suffers from psychosis if you've never actually witnessed him in active psychosis so that is incredibly problematic the same with suicide suicidal ideology you can't you i mean it's unfortunate but you can't really diagnose someone as suicidal unless they've expressed their suicidal ideations or you've seen it and so if they're saying that they've never observed any of this and he's never expressed any of this, then yeah, it's incredibly problematic. According to the senior psychologist, Randy Rosenquist, who was commissioned by the prison to examine Brevik, he rather appeared to have personality disorders, which is common. A lot of people have personality disorders. Councils representing families and victims filed requests that the court order a second opinion. While the prosecuting authority at Brevik's lawyer initially did not want new experts to be appointed. On the 13th of January, 2012, after much pressure, the Oslo District Court ordered a second expert panel to evaluate Brevik's mental state. He initially refused to cooperate. He later changed his mind and in late February, a new period of psychiatric observation occurred, this time using different methods than the first period. If the original diagnosis had been upheld by the court, it would have meant that Brevik could not be sentenced to prison. The prosecution could instead have requested that he be detained in a psychiatric hospital. Medical advice would then determine whether or not the courts decide to release him at some point later in his life. If considered a perpetual danger to society, Brevik could have been kept in confinement for life. Shortly after the second period of pretrial psychiatric observation had begun, the prosecution said it expected Brevik would be declared sane. On the 10th of April, 2012, the second evaluation was published with the conclusion that Brevik was not psychotic during the attacks and that he was not psychotic during their evaluation. Instead, they diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. 
Breivik expressed hope that being declared sane in a letter sent to several Norwegian newspapers shortly before his trial, in which he wrote about the prospect of being sent to a psych ward. I must admit that this is the worst thing that could have happened to me as it is the ultimate humiliation. To send a political activist such as myself to a mental hospital is more sadistic and evil than to kill him. It is a fate worse than death. Yeah, okay. So it is antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder are both part of the cluster B cluster of personality disorders. It is not uncommon to have both. It is common to have narcissistic personality disorder on top of other personality disorders. You could have narcissistic personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. It's actually common. You could have narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. So this is actually not surprising to me at all. And also the amount of planning, the fact that he spent years in advance trying to make the money to fund it. It's very rare that you see someone who is a spree killer or a, um, someone who is going to commit a mass shooting think that far in advance, unless it is a whole terror organization, think that far in advance to try and fund what they're doing, which is why I did not think that he was psychotic because psychosis, like it happens in a split second and then you come out of it. And a lot of times you don't always remember the things that happened. So this actually falls more in line with the crime that he did and the amount of time that um, went into what happened. Um, Brevik expressed on June 8th, 2012, the professor of psychiatry Ulrich Friedrich Malt testified in court as an expert witness, saying he found it unlikely that Brevik had had schizophrenia. According to him, Brevik primarily suffered from Asperger's, Tourette's, and narcissistic personality disorder, possibly some paranoid psychosis. Malt cited a number of factors in support of this, including deviant behavior as a child, extreme specialization, abbreviated study of weapons and bomb technology, facial expressions, remarkable way of talking, and obsession with numbers. Eric Johansson disagreed, concluding that Brevik was lying and was not delusional or psychotic. That I believe. Johansson had observed and spoken to Brevik for more than 20 hours. In the pretrial hearing, Brevik read a prepared statement demanding to be released and treated as a hero for his preemptive attack, attack against the traitors, accused of planning cultural genocides. He said that they are they are committing or planning to commit cultural destruction, including deconstruction of the Norwegian ethnic group and deconstruction of the Norwegian culture. This is the same as ethnic cleansing. Look, I absolutely love Scandinavian culture across Swedish culture, Norwegian culture, Danish culture, Finnish culture. I love them all. Um, it started when I was a child. This is going to sound super bizarre. Like I had Finland as my assignment for my countries of the world. Ever since then, I've been in this very weird love affair with Scandinavian culture. I've studied the countries, I've studied the cultures, and um, I f this is just not a thing that can happen. Um, you guys are such resilient people. You have such strong cultural connection that isn't evidenced in many other European cultures. And yes, I know a lot of people are gonna come for me. Yes, Spain, Italy, you all have very strong cultures, but they're not so uniquely white. A lot of light-skinned people have these wonderful cultures that are getting lost 
in white supremacy because there has to be this vague sense of whiteness. And what I find in Scandinavian culture is this amazing way to hold on to their unique culture and the things that make them uniquely Scandinavian, even under this threat of having their cultural, um, all the things that make them unique, dumbed down by things like, you know, Islam coming in and things like that. They still open their doors wholeheartedly and want to embrace these people and bring them into part of their culture. You never have to worry. You will not lose your beautiful way of life to, you know, people coming, immigrants coming into your country. That's not anything you're ever going to have happen. You just have such a sweet, such a sweeping rich heritage you never have to worry that you're going to lose that wonderful heritage. So just never worry, never fear. We on the other side of the world, we see that beautiful culture and that beautiful heritage. And if we can see it, then you just know it's never going anywhere. So um, on, on the 24th of August, Brevik was judged sane. He was sentenced to containment, a special form of prison that can be extended indefinitely with an approximate period of 21 years and a minimum time of 10, the maximum penalty Norway can give you. Brevik did not appeal and on September 8th, the media announced that that verdict was final. He has been imprisoned in extremely high security jail um, since then. Um, Norway has only ever imprisoned 10 or 11 prisoners under these conditions. He's at Skien Prison, formerly known as Telmark Fundskel. Yes, I know I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. Um, he was transferred from Aya to this particular place. Um, he has had visitors, a military chaplain, um, visited him every two weeks. And he was paid 164,000 kroner um, by the government. I, I will be a prison chaplain if you will pay me 164,000 kroner. To do. I'm sorry, that was wrong. I'm sorry. Please excuse my rotted humor. His mother visited him five times before she passed away. And a researcher visited him um, in 2014. No one else has ever requested access to him or been granted access. He is isolated from other inmates and has only ever had contact with healthcare workers and guards. This type of isolation that he has experienced is what European Court of Human Rights calls relative social isolation, according to a verdict in the 2016 Oslo District Court. Um, in Europe, it's not common that they granted compensation compensatory measures to prisoners that are being held in isolation for several years. As of 2016, he has an electric typewriter and an Xbox with no internet connection in his cell. Previously, when the original verdict was upheld, his permission for access to the computer ended. Brevik has been enrolled in a bachelor degree program with the University of Oslo. He passed two courses his first year seeing as how he doesn't have internet access, that's pretty good. He claimed in a letter that the prison had harsh conditions in 2015 and it forced him to drop out of classes. According to a March 2016 statement by his lawyer, he became a Nazi. 
in 2020, they made an application for parole. Um, as of July 2021, he had been in jail for 10 years, granting him the right to have his petition for parole reviewed. It has not at this point. However, March of 2016, he sued the government of Norway civilly. The verdict, um, he sued them over his solitary confinement, over his general conditions of imprisonment, including a claim of excessive use of handcuffs. Brevik claimed that his solitary confinement violated his human rights and asserted that he was being treated degradingly, included too many strip searches and too many searches of his cell. Look, in the United States, if we'd have been like, look, you're searching my cell too much, they would have searched your cell even more. Really sorry to break it to you. On the 14th of March, members of the court performed a walkthrough of the prison cells used by Brevik at Aya Prison. Later the same week, members of the court inspected the prison facilities used at Skeen Prison. No members of the press were permitted to join the walkthrough. On the 15th, the district court convened inside Skeen Prison. Upon arrival, the police removed his handcuffs. Brevik shook hands with the lawyers and faced the gallery and then in true fashion, performed a Nazi salute. One judge said that Brivik's salute was disruptive and therefore I wish you don't do it again. A lawyer from the office of the attorney general said Brevik's incoming and outgoing mail through the postal system, around 15% or 600 pieces of mail out of 4,000 had been confiscated. The head of Brivik's legal team told the court about Brivik's letter of complaint to the government in 2012, which detailed being awakened by flashlights as often as every half of an hour. Once again, I don't feel bad. It's worse here. Maybe that's why I'm desensitized. Parts of the trial proceedings were closed to the public. Um, on March 16, Brevik started his testimony. He stated he had been subject to grip maneuvers 2,300 times where he put his hands through the slot of the door and his hands had been held in place by a prison officer while the door had been swung open. Ow. Brevik described these two forms of extra punishment saying it was quite demeaning to be exposed to this every day. So I countered by leaving my cell. I did not want to exercise in the fresh air. I did not want to train or use my prison study cell. On paper, he had three cells. But because of the government's actions, he hardly used the training cells. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I Once again, I don't feel bad that you chose not to use two of your three cells because you didn't like the way the guards treated you. Prison officers at Aya Prison were not to speak to him during his first day there. And this was the case for parts of his stay at Skeen Prison. Only the chief of the section was supposed to speak to him. Furthermore, Brevik had not said no to the prison offering him activities such as football or chess, but asked to be offered other activities. Beginning in March 2014, he said he was finally able to receive the one hour of fellowship with prison officers. He said that claims had been made that he was allowed to prepare food, but he was permitted only to press an egg cooker and not permitted to put frozen pizzas in the oven. Oh, like, I'm sorry. I think this once again is because they're not allowed to go anywhere near a kitchen in the United States. So him being upset that he couldn't make his own pizza, I don't feel bad. He still received a prison visitor twice a month. That was the chaplain. Recording to recreation, fresh air. He said all outdoors recreation was in a concrete box. Oh, no. You have to walk around in a concrete box outside. Oh, no. Like, 
Do you know how when we do in the United States, when you're in solitary confinement, you're in solitary confinement. That means there is no outdoor recreation. You get no recreation. I'm, I don't, I'm sorry. Once again, desensitized, but don't feel bad. Regarding being woken up at night, Brevik said there are inspections through the slot of the prison cell every 40 minutes. Every time the slot was open, they demanded a sign of a, I, once again, I don't feel bad. I worked in inpatient setting every hour, walk the floor, look in the room, you shine a flight light in, you just make sure nobody went AWOL. Like, this isn't inhumane. This is life. Like, I'm sorry. Entitlement. Like, stop. Like, he's upset because the guy is shining the light in his room and he sits, they called into the cell. Are you alive? Are you alive? Until I woke up. Once again, don't feel bad. Like, it sounds like life with kids with me. The kids run in the room. Mommy, daddy, wake up. Like, I don't feel bad. After he came to Skein prison, only five out of 300 letters that he sent had not been confiscated. Once again, don't feel bad. He is a terrorist. And in the United States, terrorists get zero mail. None. It doesn't matter if you commit a domestic plot or your ISIS. You get no mail. If you get sent to Supermax, none. Zero communication. No outgoing, no incoming. Sorry, don't feel bad. 2015, he said he was told he would be locked into isolation for 23 hours a day. The decision was reversed in 2015 after a visit by the parliamentary ombudsman. Now, I don't believe in solitary confinement because there are multiple studies that show that it has horrible effects on your mental health. So I don't think that you should be locked into isolation for 23 hours a day that I can side with him on. There was a dark film on the walls that was preventing natural light. This is a big thing. Not getting enough sunlight can have horrible effects on your mental health. Brivik testified about how authorities prevented him from buying postage stamps and how skiing prison. I'm sorry. Like, you don't get stamps in the U.S. You just don't. It's not a given that you get to talk to anybody. Basically, to me, it sounds like he's complaining that he's in a U.S. prison. I know that sounds awful. Maybe it makes me cruel, but it sounds like he's complaining that he is being treated like he's in American prison instead of Norwegian prison. Like, this is literally what this sounds like. Breivik told about having to wait a long time after having to ask for a toothbrush or asked about having to turn off the TV. This low-level terrorizing continued for two years. Dude, you get commissary in the United States. You get one toothbrush when you come in. Some places, maybe they'll replace it for free once at the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the month. And the rest of the time, you have to use your commissary that your family puts in there to replace your toothbrush. So, once again, not feeling bad. Brevik testified that he had to drink cold coffee because he couldn't have a thermos. Don't feel bad. Brevik also complained about the announcements, including that each message was repeated. Don't feel bad. Brevik said that he had not been permitted to publish his correct mailing address. Don't feel bad. Your fangirls can't find you. Brevik said it's important that Oslo District Court say that the types of addresses pertaining say that what kind of addresses are permissible. I get it. You want your fans to find you. He added that media outlets <laughs> were not given access to him. What? <laughs> and that he wanted access to more media outlets and newspapers. Look, once again, like I said, 
you don't get access if you are convicted of any mass shooting terroristic charges in the United States, you get no newspapers, you get no television, you get no contact with the outside world. You do not get to know what's happening in current events. Don't feel bad. Brevik testified that after two years in isolation, he started to love reality television programs, Paradise Hotel, which he said is evidence that he had become brain damaged. I'm sorry, I'm gonna give that to him. I think that <laughs> when Paradise Hotel is all that you love, maybe you may have brain damage. Brevik said that isolation is the most effective way to radicalize people because he never gets corrected by others. That is a lie. The reason that isolation only works to radicalize people is if you are in contact with other people. Being in this type of situation where you have no contact with the outside world, you have no contact with other people, you do not get your letters, you do not get your mail, it's the quickest way to unradicalize you because you're not in contact with the radical thinking that puts you in this position. It would be a quick way to radicalize a person if the only content they're getting, the only male things like that are from that radical group. But since he's actually being cut off from that, no. Brevik talked about how um, certain parties, and he said that those later caused talked about how certain parties later changed their name to the Nordic state and how it affected them. The first witness, Randy Rosenquist, a psychiatrist at Ia prison was cross-examined and asked if she had suggested visits without glass. She replied, yes, I have discussed this. I have been thinking that visits without glass could be something to consider. I don't think that with his image, he would be violent to someone he has a working relationship with read out loud recommendations by Rosenquist, which included retired police officers could, for example, come to socialize, drink coffee, play games, and help him reconnect socially. During the third day of the trial, they introduced a report from the prevention section at the Office of the Parliamentary Ombudsman dated the 11th of November, 2015. Regarding a series of visits that year by the ombudsman, the report said that Brevik was being held at a section where sometimes there's only one prisoner. They read from the report and it stated that limitations on visits at the time of the inspection seemed quite strict. He said that the section of the prison, it should be expanded and the community between prisoners and employers should measure up to minimize the risk of isolation. At that section, the prison should evaluate alternative possibilities for recreating fresh air, in addition to the concrete exercise yard. The report recommended that the prison should discontinue the visual surveillance of health-related con conversations that occur with the glass wall between the prisoner and health professionals. In April 2016, the district court judge Helene Andraskilik gave her verdict. The verdict said that the conditions of his imprisonment breached Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, but Article 8 had not been violated. Confiscation of letters was justified. The government was ordered to pay 330,937 Norwegian kroner for the plaintiff's legal expenses, which in this case went to his lawyer. Brevik was not in the courtroom when this was handed down. So basically, they are saying that he needs, they feel that they agree that um, there needs to be more socializing. However, the issue was this is because of the way that the prison was set up. They could not actually 
me out any type of way to give them what they wanted like to get him more socialized because at the time the way the prison was set up didn't allow them to cause this to come to fruition so um while they did feel that he needed to be more socialized at that time they couldn't make the changes they wanted to they couldn't like give him more exercise they couldn't change that the way the prison did things in order to get him to be able to socialize with more people so they did find that it was cruel and humane for him to not be socialized as much as he should but they just didn't have the means and the way to fix it at that time in the prison so that is the story of a mass shooting in Norway um, that happened at a summer camp. I think that kind of got glossed over a little that the majority of the people that who were injured were teens. Um, the most majority of the people who were killed or injured were teens. Um, I think 69 in total were teenagers. Um, so join me next week. We're going to look into the really ridiculous and insane story of the company Von Dutch. There is a lot of backstabbing, double crossing, ousting of business partners, violence, criminals, and of course, there's a little bit of murder in there. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.